You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for the December 22nd, 2022 Thursday's reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Nicola Fordwood. Today, we will be reading the following main articles from the Daily Camera. Against All Odds, Ukraine Still Stands, written by Zeke Miller, Lisa Mascaro, and E. Eduardo Castillo. Severe Weather Brings Power Outages, Alerts, and Closures, written by camera staff. Public Library City Runs More Tests After Finding High Levels of Meth in Bathrooms, written by Annie Mel. More than 1,000 pets died in Marshall Fire, written by Noelle Phillips, and following up with miscellaneous articles. The following main articles from the Longmont Times call. Westview Acres City Council Approves Annexation Despite Concerns, written by Matthew Bennett. Labor Woes, Santa Claus Shortage, written by Elizabeth Hernandez. Boulder County Municipalities Awarded Climate Grants, written by Dallas Heltzell. Lafayette Commits to Affordable Housing Loan for Mobile Home Park, written by Andrea Gajeda. And following up with miscellaneous articles. From the Daily Camera. Zelensky to Congress. Against All Odds, Ukraine Still Stands. Written by Zeke Miller, Lisa Mascaro, and E. Eduardo Castillo. The Associated Press. Washington. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said Wednesday that against all odds, Ukraine still stands, as he paid a defiant wartime visit to Washington to thank U.S. leaders and ordinary Americans for their support in fighting off Russia's invasion and pledged there would be no compromises in trying to bring an end to the war. President Joe Biden and Congress responded with billions in new assistance and a pledge to help Ukraine pursue a just peace. Zelensky received a thunderous ovation from legislatures during an address at the U.S. Capitol, declaring that Ukraine will never surrender and warning that the stakes of the conflict were greater than just the fate of his nation, that democracy worldwide is being tested. This battle cannot be ignored, hoping that the ocean or something else will provide protection, he said, speaking in English for what he had billed as a speech to Americans. Earlier Wednesday, Biden welcomed Zelensky to the Oval Office saying the U.S. and Ukraine would continue to project a united defense 
as Russia wages a brutal assault on Ukraine's right to exist as a nation. Zelensky, on his first known trip outside his country since Russia invaded in February, said he wanted to visit earlier, and his visit now showed the situation is under control because of your support. Pressed on how Ukraine would try to bring an end to the conflict, Zelensky rejected Biden's framing of a just peace, saying, For me, as a president, just peace is no compromises. He said the war would end once Ukraine's sovereignty, freedom, and territorial integrity were restored, as well as the payback for all the damages inflicted by Russian aggression. There can't be any just peace in the war that was imposed on us, he added. The highly sensitive trip was taking place after 10 months of a brutal war that has seen tens of thousands of casualties on both sides and devastation for Ukrainian civilians. Zelensky's visit was meant to reinvigorate support for his country in the U.S. and around the world, amid concerns that allies are growing weary of the costly war and its disruption to global food and energy supplies. Just before his arrival, the U.S. announced a $1.8 billion military aid package for Ukraine, including, for the first time, Patriot surface-to-air missiles. And Congress planned to vote on a spending package that includes about $45 billion in emergency assistance to Ukraine. Russia, Biden said, is trying to use winter as a weapon. But Ukrainian people continue to inspire the world. Later, in a joint news conference, he said Russian President Vladimir Putin has no intention of stopping this cruel war. The two leaders appeared to share a warm rapport, laughing at each other's comments and patting each other on the back throughout the visit. Though Zelensky made clear he will continue to press Biden and other Western leaders for ever more support. He said that after the Patriot system was up and running, we will send another signal to President Biden that we would like to get more Patriots. We are in a war, Zelensky added with a smile as Biden chuckled at the direct request. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Biden said it is important for the American people and for the world to hear directly from you, Mr. President, about Ukraine's fight and the need to continue to stand together through 2023. Zelensky headed abroad after making a daring and dangerous trip Tuesday to what he called the hottest spot on the 800-mile front line of the war the city of Bakhmut, in Ukraine's contested Donetsk province. He praised Ukrainian troops for their courage, resilience, and strength, as artillery boomed in the background. Poland's private broadcaster, TVN24, said Zelensky crossed into Poland early Wednesday on his way to Washington. The station showed footage of what appeared to be Zelensky arriving at a train station and being escorted to a motorcade of American SUVs. TVN24 said the video, partially blurred for security reasons, was shot in Przemysl, a Polish border town that has been the arrival point for many refugees fleeing the war. Officials, citing security concerns, were cagey about Zelensky's travel plans, but a U.S. official confirmed that Zelensky arrived on a U.S. Air Force jet that landed at Joint Base Andrews, just outside the capital from the Polish city of Rzeszow.
Biden told Zelensky, who wore a combat green sweatshirt and boots during their Oval Office meeting, that it's an honor to be by your side. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, in her invitation to Zelensky to speak to lawmakers, said, The fight for Ukraine is the fight for democracy itself, and that we were looking forward to hearing your inspiring message of unity, resilience, and determination. U.S. and Ukrainian officials have made clear they do not envision an imminent resolution to the war and are preparing for fighting to continue for some time. The latest infusion of U.S. money would be the biggest yet and exceed Biden's $37 billion request. Biden has repeated that while the U.S. will arm and train Ukraine, American forces will not be directly engaged in the war. Biden and Zelensky first discussed the idea of a visit during a telephone call on December 11th, with a formal invitation following three days later, according to a senior U.S. administration official. Zelensky accepted the invitation on Friday, and it was confirmed on Sunday, when the White House began coordinating with Pelosi to arrange the congressional address. Arctic storm. Severe weather brings power outages, alerts, closures. Written by the camera staff. The cold front and winter storm that brought snow and sub-zero temperatures to Boulder County on Wednesday evening also delivered power outages, multiple automobile crashes, and government closures. As of 9.45 p.m. Wednesday, Boulder had received just over four inches of snow, and the temperature had reached five below zero. Longmont had received just under five inches of snow, with a temperature of three below. Amid the extreme weather, hundreds of Lafayette and Erie residents experienced a power outage that lasted for hours. More than 1,800 Excel Energy customers in Lafayette and Erie lost power in an outage first reported at 5.14 p.m. As of 7.55 p.m., 267 customers were still without power, and the Erie Police Department reported that a signal at North 111th Street and Arapahoe Road was on a four-way red flash until further notice. As of 8.45 p.m., power had been restored to the customers affected by the outage. A number of crashes were reported across the county on police scanners. There was a reported crash in Lafayette on Baseline Road near North 119th Street. The Lafayette Police Department tweeted at 5.49 p.m., that Baseline Road was closed in both directions between North Public Road and North 119th Street due to the crash. At 7.42 p.m., Lafayette Police posted a follow-up tweet saying Baseline Road had reopened in both directions. On the police scanners, there was chatter about other crashes, including an injury crash in the 300 block of Driftwood Circle in Lafayette. At 6.27 p.m., the Erie Police Department announced on Twitter it had issued a crash advisory for Erie. During crash advisories, per the city's website, officers only respond to more, to more serious collisions, such as those involving injuries, fatalities, public property damage, alcohol or drugs, or hit-and-run crashes. Several Boulder County area organizations announced closures due to the storm. The City of Boulder will close all public-facing city facilities on Thursday and Friday, except for the East Boulder Community Center, 
which will be open only as a warming center for those in need. The St. Vrain Valley School District announced that all schools on Thursday will have online learning only. Finals for high school students will also be virtual. Boulder Valley School District, whose students are on break, has also canceled all programming for Thursday. The University of Colorado Boulder issued an administrative closure for Thursday and Friday. Only critical and essential service employees should report to campus. All Front Range Community College campuses, including Longmont, are closed for in-person services Thursday, Friday, and Saturday due to weather conditions. All college business will be conducted remotely. Weld County officers will be closed Thursday through Monday for the weather and pre-scheduled holiday closures. The Longmont Ice Pavilion will be closed on Thursday due to weather. Some offices already were scheduled to be closed due to the Christmas holiday. Boulder County offices will be closed Thursday through Monday, including the Boulder County Sheriff's Office. The Boulder County District Attorney's Office will close at noon on Friday and reopen Tuesday. The Meadows, George Reynolds, and Nobo Corner Library branches will be open on Monday. The main library is currently closed for cleaning. The Boulder West and East Age Well Centers will be closed until Tuesday. The North and East Boulder Rec Centers will open on Saturday, but all three recreation centers will close Sunday. Public Library City runs more tests after finding high meth levels in bathrooms. Written by Annie Mel. Editor's Note this article has been updated to clarify that Tuesday's tests were conducted inside restrooms and in areas closest to the restrooms. Wednesday's tests were in parts of the library outside of the restrooms. Days after the Boulder Public Library closed, when tests found high methamphetamine levels in restrooms, the city is now awaiting additional test results to determine whether the contamination spread to surface areas. On Monday... The library announced its closure after testing that morning found higher-than-acceptable methamphetamine levels in restroom exhaust vents. Since then, it hired a contractor who on Tuesday conducted tests of surface levels where the residue could have spread most easily inside restrooms and in areas closest to the restrooms, said Sarah Huntley, spokesperson for the city. The contractor on Wednesday conducted another set of tests on surfaces outside of the restrooms. The city hopes to get the initial results back on Friday and the results from Wednesday's testing by Monday. From there, the city will decide if it needs to test sections of the library outside the restrooms before determining when it will reopen, Huntley said. Leading up to the closure, the city received about 15 reports regarding people smoking in the library restrooms in the past month. In response, it developed an extensive cleaning protocol and mandated that all cleaning staff wear personal protective equipment, Huntley said. The city next contacted a contractor to conduct testing. Huntley was not sure what the library's initial test results were, but said the city based the closure off an understanding that any level above 0.2 UG, 100 centimeters squared, is concerning. According to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, 
If any composite sample results are above 0.2 UG slash 100 centimeters squared, the property owner must choose between the following two courses of action. Assume the property is a methamphetamine-affected property and have it assessed and decontaminated, or have a full clearance sampling conducted on the property by a state-certified consultant. Boulder City Manager Norea Rivera-Vandemide consulted with Boulder County Public Health after the city received the results on Monday, and the county health department agreed that libraries should shutter until additional testing was completed, Huntley said. Even before the decision to close was announced, two city library security guards resigned for reasons related to individuals using drugs in the library restrooms, Huntley said. A third security guard resigned about a month ago due to a dispute with Denver Metro Protective Services, the company the city uses to employ security guards. Huntley said the city has requested additional security guards, but is not but it has not heard back from the Denver Metro Protective Services regarding its request. We've had difficulty staffing security for some time now, she added. Even then, the question of what the remediation process will look like is being asked by city officials. What can be done to prevent drug use in the library, and what can the city do to make sure that private spaces remain private? are two questions city administrators are pondering, Huntley said. Boulder elected officials have also begun asking similar questions. Despite having had a recent update on crime, I would ask the City Council Agenda Committee to consider if it might be useful for us to have some dedicated time, study session maybe, to discuss the meth epidemic and the ripple effects it is having on community members suffering from addiction, on the broader community, on businesses, on our staff members, etc., wrote City Council Member Rachel Friend in an email to the committee on Monday. I think it may be helpful for us to have a dedicated conversation about the realities, obstacles, and possible paths through this difficult issue, which hasn't happened during my years on council. Mayor Pro Tem Mark Wallach added that the meth issue is a huge problem without an obvious solution. This is going to be a major issue when city council members return from our winter break and may well be a major issue for the new library district moving forward, he said. No one wants to be uncaring about the unhoused community or restrict access to the library. But when it comes to the safety of children, the main consideration is clear. What has happened cannot continue to happen. City council member Nicole Spear echoed her fellow council members, saying there is no simple fix to the issue of meth addiction in Boulder, but added that the problem is not unique to the unhoused community. This is something many housed members of our city struggle with, including our youth, she said. There are innovative, evidence-based treatment programs, like contingency management, that are showing a lot of success in other communities that are dealing with meth addiction. I am hopeful we can try those solutions here in Boulder County before too long, because as the failed war on drugs showed us, criminalizing drug use does not stop addiction. BCPH and the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment did not respond to questions before publication Wednesday night. CU study finding. More than 1,000 pets died in Marshall Fire. Pet Rescue App 
Public Memorials Planned in Honor of Animals Lost in December 30th Wildfire, written by Noelle Phillips. More than 1,000 dogs, cats, guinea pigs, and other house pets are estimated to have perished in the Marshall Fire, and the community is planning to honor them with public memorials as the fire's one-year anniversary approaches. A University of Colorado Boulder study estimated the number of pets killed in the wildfire after the authors researched news articles and social media posts about lost pets, read emergency public information documents, and interviewed fire, pe- fire victims who lost pets and animal shelter workers who helped with rescues, according to a CU news release. Getting a precise count of lost pets was nearly impossible because pet licenses were not required in the fire zone, the study found. The researchers concluded 1,182 pets were killed. The study did not include livestock. Twenty-four animals, mostly dogs, were brought to the Humane Society of Boulder Valley and reunited with their owners after the fire. Of the 107 lost animal reports filed with the Humane Society, only 26 were canceled because the animal was found later, according to the CU study. After the fire... Hundreds of families searched for lost pets. Many people were not home when the fire started and could not get back to their houses in time to save their pets from the fast-moving fire. Some families who were home had to leave so quickly they did not have time to wrangle frightened animals from under beds or basement crawl spaces. The two researchers, Leslie Irvine, a sociology professor at CU Boulder and author of the book Filling the Ark, Animal Welfare in Disasters, and veterinarian Dr. Kassara and Andre also concluded failures in the emergency notification system and standstill traffic in the evacuation zone contributed to pet deaths. Wind gusts topped 100 miles per hour when the fire started around midday on December 30th, and those winds pushed flames through dry grass and brush. The Marshall Fire was unprecedented in Colorado, destroying more than 1,000 homes and businesses in Boulder County and causing an estimated $2 billion in destruction. Two people died. When Marshall Fire survivors tell their story, the loss of beloved pets still brings tears, and those who manage to rescue their animals often list them as the most important things they saved. Jim Kerfman, 73, told his evacuation story to the Denver Post on Wednesday with his black Labrador retriever by his side. The dog, Charlie, was the first thing Kerfman and his wife Sandy loaded into the pickup truck as they prepared to evacuate. They only took him and some extra clothes when they fled. He's the finest black lab going, Kerfman said as he described how much the dog has helped his family cope. To remember the lost pets... An Arvada Girl Scout troop raised money to place a bench in the Autry Park dog area area in Superior, and Louisville Rising commissioned Michael Garman, a firefighter and artist, to create an installation to honor lost pets at the Davidson Mesa Dog Park. Another Marshall Fire evacuee, David Crawford, is designing an app to help pet guardians connect with trusted contacts to enter their homes and rescue pets during emergencies. Before Crawford fled his home, he knocked on a neighbor's door and discovered his German shepherd alone inside. Crawford was able to reach the neighbor and get permission to go inside to rescue the dog. 
In one square block that I drove around, there was a cockatiel, a tortoise, two cats, and two dogs, Crawford said in the university's new release, news release. I had time. I could have conceivably saved all those animals. Health. U.S. Releases Medicine from National Stockpile. Written by Amanda Seitz. The Associated Press. Washington. The Biden administration said Wednesday it will release doses of prescription flu medicine from the strategic national stockpile to states as flu-sickened patients continue to flock to hospitals and doctors' offices around the country. This year's flu season has hit hard and early. Some people are even noticing bare shelves at pharmacies and grocery stores when they make a run for over-the-counter medicines as cases have spiked. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that the flu has resulted in 150,000 hospitalizations and 9,300 deaths so far this season. Jurisdictions will be able to get the support they need to keep Americans healthy as flu cases rise this winter, Don O'Connell, an assistant secretary for preparedness and response at the Health and Human Services Department, which oversees the CDC, said in a statement. States will be able to request doses of the prescription flu medicine, Tamiflu, kept in the strategic national stockpile from HHS. The administration is not releasing how many doses will be made available. Antiviral medications were released from the stockpile more than a decade ago during the H1N1, also known as swine flu, pandemic. Last week, the federal agency also announced it would allow states to dip into statewide stockpiles for Tamiflu, making millions of treatment courses available. Tamiflu can be prescribed to treat flu in people over the age of two weeks old. This flu season is coming on the heels of a nasty spike of RSV, or respiratory syncytial virus, cases in children, and just as COVID-19 cases are climbing, again. Spot shortages of over-the-counter pain relievers and medicines have been reported at stores around the country, particularly for children. HHS said it is working with states to keep in-demand medicines stocked and drug makers like Johnson & Johnson report production lines are running around the clock. CVS Health, for example, has placed a two-product limit on all children's pain relief products bought through its pharmacies or online. Walgreens is limiting customer, customers online to six purchases of children's over-the-counter fever-reducing products. The Food and Drug Administration has not reported a shortage of Tamiflu. However, the federal agency says the prescription antibiotic amoxicillin is in short supply due to increased demand. 2022 Reflection Few gains for investors, markets slumped. Investors found few, if any, safe havens in 2022, as central banks in the U.S. and around the globe raised interest rates for the first time in years to fight surging inflation, stoking fear of a global recession. Consumers paid more for energy, food, and just about everything else. Borrowing to buy a house or car also got costlier. On Wall Street, the benchmark S&P 500 index fell into a bear market by dropping more than 20% from the record high set in early January. The energy sector was the lone winner, while technology stocks tumbled. A route in the bond market was particularly painful turn for fixed-income investors. Cryptocurrency investors weren't spared either. Here's a look back on the key events in markets for 2022. Inflation and the Fed 
Central banks' response to inflation overshadowed financial markets in 2022 and could very well do so again next year. The Federal Reserve started raising rates in March and would eventually raise rates seven times by a total of 4.25 percentage points. By year-end, there were hopeful signs on inflation as prices for goods fell and rents started declining. But tough talk from the Fed in December took the steam out of a fourth-quarter rally for stocks. The bear roars. Wall Street's brutal year left few stocks unscathed, and the vast majority fell into a bear market under the weight of fast-rising interest rates. After peaking on the very first trading day of 2022, it took about six months for the S&P 500 to drop more than 20%. The biggest losers were the stocks that had performed the best in the rally that followed the coronavirus crash. Seven out of ten stocks in the S&P 500 fell in 2022, as of December 21st. Bond market blues. It was one of the worst years ever for bond investors. Decades high inflation meant the fixed payments coming from bonds in the future won't buy as many groceries, gallons of gasoline, or whatever else is rising in price. The Fed's decision to raise interest rates also hammered bond prices. Historically, bonds have held up better than stocks during economic downturns, offering some cushion for investors, but both tumbled in 2022. Housing market slumps. As 2022 began, the average rate on a 30-year mortgage was slightly above 3%, near historic lows. By October, the average rate on that 30-year home loan had soared above 7%, a 20-year high. High Higher mortgage rates combined with still rising home prices to make it difficult for many would-be buyers to afford a home. Sales of previously occupied U.S. homes saw their biggest sales slump in more than a decade. Is Tesla on autopilot? You can't blame Tesla shareholders for feeling jilted. With CEO Elon Musk's focus diverted by his acquisition of Twitter, Tesla shares lost more than half their value. Most of Musk's wealth is tied up in Tesla stock, which started falling in April when he disclosed a stake in Twitter. The falling stock price bumped Musk into second place on Forbes' list of the world's wealthiest people behind Bernard Arnault, chairman of luxury goods maker LVMH. Consumers feel the pinch. The highest inflation in four decades is hitting consumers right in their wallets. Households coping with higher prices are likely depleting savings built up during the pandemic. Wages went up, although not at the same pace as inflation. Credit card debt ballooned and rents increased. Aggressive rate hikes by the feds have pushed up the cost of borrowing money. But while the average rate on a credit card rose to 16.3% in August, according to the government, the average rate for a savings account is still just 0.2%. Ukraine War Impact Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February sent prices soaring for commodities the world runs on, oil, natural gas, and wheat. European prices for natural gas rose to 17 times their pre-war levels after Russia choked off most supplies over the war. Global oil prices spiked as Western buyers shunned Moscow's crude sending Brent to over $120 per barrel in May. Record wheat prices spurred disastrous food inflation in poor countries. By year-end, oil had fallen back to around $80. U.S. drivers got some much-needed relief from higher gasoline prices. China ditches zero COVID. China's economic growth and stock market slid in 2022 under pressure from pandemic controls and corporate debt. 
The world's second-largest economy shrank by 2.6% in the three months ending in June, compared with the previous quarter, after Shanghai and other industrial centers shut down to fight outbreaks. Forecasters say annual growth might fall below 3%, among the lowest in decades. In response, the ruling Communist Party has eased off anti-disease restrictions and tried to revive the struggling real estate industry. Crypto's wild ride. The year began with Bitcoin above forty-five thousand dollars, and the crypto industry making further inroads among politicians and mainstream financial institutions. As 2022 ends, Bitcoin is below seventeen thousand dollars, and the industry is reeling from another crisis. FTX, the second largest crypto exchange, unraveled in November after questions about its financial strength prompted customers to request large withdrawals. It filed for bankruptcy protection November 11th. Founder Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas and faces criminal charges in the U.S. The streaming wars. Netflix, Warner Brothers, Discovery, and other big entertainment companies tumbled in 2022 as streaming services struggled amid increased competition and rising inflation stifled advertising spending. Consumers who'd been cooped up during the pandemic went out and turned off their streaming services. The sheer number of streaming options also left companies in a fierce fight for viewers' attention. There are no obituaries in the Daily Camera today. And from the Longmont Times call, West Few Acres City Council approves annexation despite concerns. Written by Matthew Bennett. The Longmont City Council has approved the West Few Acres annexation and concept plan, paving the way for 20 new single-family homes to go in on the property along the southwest edge of Longmont. The decision at Tuesday's meeting was unanimous. Three people who live near the Westview Acres property raised concerns during the meeting about the project's density and the additional traffic it will generate on nearby streets. If I was moving into that neighborhood and I had a young child, I'd be very concerned about getting into an accident. Longmont resident Carolyn Rothschild said, "I would be concerned myself turning out of my neighborhood with that neighborhood then being right there." The 7.6-acre property, which already has two houses on it, is located west of Airport Road between Pike Road and Colorado 119. In August, the Longmont Planning and Zoning Commission reviewed the Westview Acres proposal and recommended approval in a four-to-one vote. The council also approved the annexation and concept plan on first reading during its December 6th regular session. Longmont is surrounded now by open space, Councilwoman Marcia Martin said. Living on a big lot at the periphery of the city is a big privilege. Bastal collaborative owner Jack Bastal, who applied for the annexation, told the council Tuesday night that the concept plan plan had already been scaled back from 24 houses to 22 in response to the neighbors' concerns, reducing the number of homes even more. Would make the project unsustainable in terms of taxes and services, he said. This plan is compatible, Bastal said during the council meeting. We could have come in with a lot more density. Labor woes, Santa Claus shortage. Colorado's Saint Nick demand is outweighing ho 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 holiday supply. Written by Elizabeth Hernandez. It's simple, clause and effect. An increase in holiday gatherings and events over past pandemic winters 
and a dwindling pool of St. Nick's means 2022 has been a tough year in Colorado to nail down an appointment with the big man in the red suit, according to companies that provide Santa Clauses. Slay it ain't so. We are having more demand this year, and that includes in Denver, as well as pretty much every other part of the country, said Mitch Allen, head elf at National Santa for Hire Business, Hire Santa. Allen said his firm has seen a 30% increase in demand for Santas for Hire since 2021, and a 125% increase since before the pandemic. For every new Santa who reaches out to work with Hire Santa, there are 20 customers who need a Santa, he said. There are more than 2,250 jobs for full-season Santas, elves, and other holiday entertainers open across the industry, Allen said, with more people seeking diverse Santas, from Black Santas and Mrs. Clauses to those who are deaf, Spanish-speaking, or female. Weekends in December for hourly events are already sold out in most markets, Allen said. We are turning down more business than ever before. Wrangling a Santa Claus for the Christmas market at Littleton Equine Center, Zuma's Rescue Ranch, is usually a piece of cake, but this year, an employee searched exhaustively to no avail. My six-foot-four, skinny marathon runner husband had to do it because we couldn't find anybody, and he had to wear a fat suit, said Jody Mezenich, Zuma's founder. He walked out and started doing the ho-ho-ho, and his fat suit was hanging out under his jacket. I had to quickly grab him and whisper, Honey, your flesh is hanging out. Susan Mesco, director of Colorado-based Professional Santa Claus School and president of Santa for Hire Business, Santa Visits USA, said she feels like Lucy Ricardo, trying to keep up with the chocolate factory's conveyor belt. Mesco, who's also a member of the International Santa Claus Hall of Fame, said she booked more than 1,300 events this season with a pool of 40 Santas in Colorado. Mesco's Chris Kringles undergo 180 hours of training to learn the ropes of being Father Christmas. Her Santas learn American Sign Language, Spanish, and how to work with autistic children and those with special needs, she says. And they have real-deal beards and receive hours of makeup training. Rather than tossing their kids on a mall Santa's lap for a few seconds, Mesco said parents are craving more personalized interactions and experiences for their little ones and St. Nick. For example, Mesco is coordinating several pajama parties at which families dress up in their most festive sleepwear and watch a movie with Santa. During COVID-19, virtual Santa Claus visits also have become popular. The key to locking in time with the holly jolly man of the hour is to book early, Mesco said. Like, really early. If you don't book your Santa in January, February, or March, you're not going to get that Saturday prime time, Mesco said. If you don't book with me by May, you're not going to get Christmas Eve. If your wedding was this Saturday and you tried to order a cake and a dress today, you're not going to get them. Hello, most in the professional Santa business said COVID-19 hit the North Pole hard. Many Santas have retired during the pandemic, said Ron Tivy, a 67-year-old freelance Father Christmas from Longmont, who also twists balloons at restaurants. Tivy has turned down several Santa jobs this year because he can't keep up with the demand. The biggest problem is we've had several die in the last three or four years, said Princess Wallace, owner of Colorado-based Connect Four Events. With that in mind, I have to constantly recruit. If I see a guy that would be a great Santa, I go up to him and hand him my card and say, I bet you're retired. How would you like to be a Santa? 
Enrollment in Mezco's Santa School, which has been running since the 1980s and normally has a t- class of about 60 wannabe Santas, was low during the pandemic. Mezco echoed that some Santas took their last sleigh ride as well. I just got calls from three malls that their Santa has COVID, Mezco says. Even among the available Santas, many are falling victim to COVID-19, flu, and other maladies making the rounds, contributing to the scramble for last-minute replacements. Choosing a reputable fellow to shake his belly like a bowl full of jelly is important, Mezco said. Her St. Nick's carry general liability insurance and pass a slew of background checks, she said. Sometimes when people book third-party sites, they don't know if that Santa has insurance, clean background checks, or if he's John Wayne Gacy who went out and bought a $50 party city suit, Mezco said. To combat Santa sicknesses, Mezco said her events set up Santa-tizing stations, complete with tissues, hand sanitizer, and disposable masks. Her Santas are changing their gloves once an hour, and they're using inhalers with antiviral essential oils. If your child has the sniffles, don't bring them to Santa, because if you get Santa sick, there's probably another 8,000 kids that can't see a Santa, Mesco said. Environmental Sustainability Boulder County Municipalities Awarded Climate Grants Written by Dallas Hetzel Boulder Cities and towns in Boulder County have been awarded about $600,000 in environmental sustainability matching grants. The grant program provides funding to government organizations in Boulder County for environmental sustainability projects, county officials said in a news release. In addition to supporting local efforts, Boulder County Environmental Sustainability Matching Grant Program leverages community resources for a coordinated, countywide approach to environmental sustainability. Projects, according to a Boulder County news release supported by the grants, include Boulder, $211,774 to launch a pilot incentive program to support the adoption of electric commercial-grade landscaping equipment by landscaping service providers. Erie, $25,980 to offer water conservation rebates as well as water conservation services in partnership with Resource Central. Jamestown, $13,062 to support diversions of waste from the landfill through the continuation of recycling and hard-to-recycle material diversion. Lafayette, $61,437 to support four projects, including updating the community-wide sustainability plan, supporting a community-wide greenhouse gas inventory update, and piloting an electric bike incentive program. Longmont, $194,233 to support three projects, including addressing resilience to extreme heat due to climate change through building electrification and natural climate solutions, increasing waste diversion by supporting recycling and composting at school, adding recycling bins in parks, and increasing energy efficiency and renewable energy generation at municipal facilities. Louisville. $41,285 for the continued support of a sustainability coordinator position to implement Louisville's Sustainability Action Plan, make progress toward climate action goals, and maintain regional partnerships. Lyons, $15,000 to hire a consultant to research approaches to increase the community's use of renewable energy. Netherland, $15,000 
to continue contracting with a sustainability expert for program management, sustainability expertise, and streamlined communication to the town and community. Superior, 25,500, to support innovative nature-based solutions to manage ponds and water quality without harmful chemical applications a community sustainability event in partnership with nearby municipalities, and a part-time sustainability fellowship. Boulder County is proud to have so many communities with progressive ideas that advance sustainability and climate action, Boulder County Senior Sustainability Strategist Leah Yancey said in the release. The county looks forward to seeing these grant-winning projects come to fruition in the coming year. Mountain View Mobile Home Park Lafayette commits to affordable housing loan for mobile home park, written by Andrea Grajeda. Lafayette City Council will help with the residential acquisition of an affordable housing neighborhood through a boost of $495,000. La Luna Community Cooperative, formed by residents of the Mountain View Mobile Home Park, has partnered with Thistle, a nonprofit affordable housing organization, for the purchase of the park. The co-op requested city assistance for the residential purchase. Council voted 6-0 on Tuesday to commit to an interest-free $495,000 loan for La Luna Co-op. Councilmember Enos Madrano was not in attendance. The Mobile Home Park is a 5.86-acre community with 34 units in the southeast corner of East Cleveland Street and South Burlington Avenue. Planning and Building Director Jeff Brazel presented the letter of commitment to the Council. The letter states that the loan is forgivable subject to future Council appropriations, with the conditions that the co-op is formally formed and enters into a loan agreement with Lafayette and the residents purchase the park by November 1, 2023. Brazel said that the owner of the Mountain View advised residents of the intent to sell the property. Residents then partnered with Thistle to form a co-op and are negotiating with the property owner to buy the land. He said that residential acquisition partnerships often seek funding assistance through local governments, state, and nonprofit organizations. That allows for long-term affordable rent rates. He explained that co-ops allow for residents to legally form the ability to collectively own and maintain property, create rules and regulations, and regulate rent. Vice President of the La Luna Community Operative, Patricia Rice, said her main concern is homelessness among senior residents. The residents' acquisition of the park would help prevent that by by maintaining affordable rent for those in the park who are on a fixed income. There are a number of senior citizens in our park that are going to need lower rent, and whatever grants, whatever help we can get, will go towards lowering the cost of rent, Rice said. Rice said the co-op is more than just a financial proposition for residents, but has united the residents of the park to help each other as neighbors as well. She said that she wants to make sure no resident will get left behind. Mobile Home Park resident Mary Kelly said she has lived in the neighborhood for over 40 years, and the loan will help her and many other residents keep their homes there. We just want to have a place in Lafayette to call our home, Kelly said. Man Given 30-Year Prison Sentence, written by Mitchell Byers. The man convicted in a Longmont stabbing was sentenced to 30 years in prison. John Mark McKinley, 60, 
was found guilty of attempted manslaughter and first-degree assault following a trial in July. McKinley was sentenced by Boulder District Judge Thomas Mulvihill to 30 years in prison on Tuesday for the first-degree assault count. The maximum he could have received was 32 years. He was also sentenced to six years in prison on the attempted manslaughter count, but that sentence will be served concurrently to the assault count. He will also receive 844 days credit for time served. We believe that the sentence appropriately reflects the seriousness of this offense and the impact it had on the victim, Boulder Deputy District Attorney Kelsey Waldorf said in the statement. We appreciate the thorough investigation conducted by the Longmont Police Department and how quickly they acted to locate the defendant after he committed the assault. According to police, McKinley stabbed Joshua White in Roosevelt Park on August 28, 2020. White was taken to the hospital with a stab wound to his left chest, but recovered from his injuries. McKinley admitted to the stabbing, which was caught on surveillance, but claimed self-defense at trial. He was originally charged with attempted first-degree murder in addition to first-degree assault, but the jury opted for the lesser charge of attempted manslaughter on that count. This lengthy prison sentence is the right outcome based on the defendant's actions and the harm he inflicted on the victim, Boulder District Attorney Michael Doherty said in a statement. The guilty verdict and sentence were a direct result of the excellent work by the Longmont Police Department and the prosecution team, including Deputy District Attorneys Kelsey Wardorf and Carlos Reda. The district attorney investigators played a key role in tracking down key witnesses and ensuring that justice was done. Congress. Bennett's push to add expanded child tax credit to $1.7 trillion spending plan falls short. Legislation does not include renewal of pandemic-era tax credit expansion. Written by Nick Coltrane. An omnibus spending bill proposed by lawmakers early Tuesday morning and likely the last major bill to pass this Congress did not include an extension of the expanded child tax credit, effectively killing one of U.S. Senator Michael Bennett's key priorities for the lame duck session. Bennett, whom voters overwhelmingly re-elected in November, had hoped to leverage an expiring research and development tax credit into a renewal of the child tax credit. Neither made the cut, according to Bloomberg. In a statement, Bennett laid the blame on Republican lawmakers. They refused to even discuss the deal, he said. Republican leaders decided to send a lump of coal to America's children this year, Bennett said. We know that the most significant step Congress can take to help America's children is to support an expanded child tax credit. When Congress took action on this in 2021, we cut childhood poverty in America in half. We have the data. We know it worked. Lawmakers began releasing details of the bill early Tuesday morning. It totals some $1.7 trillion. Congress needs to pass it by Friday to avoid the prospect of a partial government shutdown, according to the Associated Press. Bennett previously hoped for some kind of bipartisan deal on it, and specifically named Republican U.S. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah as a possible partner. Bennett had helped secure inclusion of the expanded tax credit in the 2021 American Rescue Plan Act. It took the form of direct monthly payments, $300 per child younger than six, and $250 for older children, 
and scale depending on the household income. It expired in January. The Census Bureau credited it with nearly halving childhood poverty in, in the country and lifting some 5.3 million Americans, most of whom are children, out of poverty. That doesn't include the millions more who weren't in poverty but otherwise benefited from the expanded credits. Its renewal hit snags in the form of concerns that it discouraged work and stoked inflation. Bennett said he wasn't tied to the expanded credit looking exactly like what it what it was in that law, but he did hope to at least close the minimum income requirements to qualify for the tax credit. Food. New law has unintended effect. More sesame. Written by Janelle Alicia, the Associated Press. A new federal law requiring that sesame be listed as an allergen on food labels is having unintended consequences, increasing the number of products with the ingredient. Food industry experts say the requirements are so stringent that many manufacturers, especially bakers, find it simpler and less expensive to add sesame to a product and to label it than to try to keep it away from other foods or equipment with sesame. As a result, several companies, including national restaurant train chains like Olive Garden, Wendy's, and Chick-fil-A, and bread makers that stock grocery shelves and serve schools, are adding sesame to products that they didn't have it before. While the practice is legal, consumers and advocates say it violates the spirit of the law aimed at making food safer for people with allergies. It was really exciting as a policy advocate and a mom to get these labels, said Naomi Saylor, a consultant with the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, whose nine-year-old daughter Zoe is allergic to sesame. Instead, companies are intentionally adding the allergen to food. The new law, which goes into effect January 1st, requires that all foods made and sold in the U.S. must be labeled if they contain sesame which is now the nation's ninth major allergen. Sesame can be found in obvious places, like sesame seeds on hamburger buns. But it is also an ingredient in many foods from protein bars to ice cream, added to sauces, dips, and salad dressings, and hidden in spices and flavorings. Advocates for families coping with allergies lobbied for years to have sesame added to the list of major allergens. Congress in 2004 created labeling requirements for eight, milk, eggs, fish, shellfish, tree nuts, peanuts, wheat, and soybeans. More than 1.6 million people in the U.S. are allergic to sesame, some so severe that they need injections of epirin, a drug used to treat life-threatening reactions. Cases of sesame allergy have been rising in recent years, along with a growing number of foods that contain the ingredient, said, Do- said Dr. Ruchi Gupta, a pediatrician and director of the Center for Food Allergy and Asthma Research at Northwestern University. Sesame is in so many things that people don't really understand, said Gupta, who called the move to add sesame to products so disappointing. In families that do have a sesame allergy, it is truly challenging, she said. Under the new law, enforced by the Food and Drug Administration, companies must now explicitly label sesame as an ingredient or separately note that a product contains sesame. In the U.S., ingredients are listed on product packaging in order of amount. 
Sesame labeling has been required for years in other places, including Canada, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. If the ingredients don't include sesame, companies must take steps to prevent the foods from coming in contact with any sesame, known as cross-contamination. Food industry experts said the new requirements aren't simple or practical. It's as if we're suddenly asked bakers to go to the beach and remove all the sand, said Nathan Murdami, a consultant with Commercial Food Sanitation, which advises the industry about food safety. Some companies include statements on labels that say a food may contain a certain product or that the food is produced in a facility that also uses certain allergens. However, such statements are voluntary, not required, according to the FDA, and they do not absolve the company of requirements to prevent cross-condemnation. Instead, some companies have taken a different approach. Officials at Olive Garden said that starting this week, the chain is adding a minimal amount of sesame flour to the company's famous breadsticks, due to the potential for cross-contamination at the bakery. Chick-fil-A has changed its white bun and multigrain brioche buns to include sesame, which Wendy's said the company has added sesame to its French toast sticks and bun. United States Bakery, which operates Franz Family Bakeries in California and the Northwest, notified customers in March that they would add a small amount of sesame flour to all hamburger and hot dog buns and rolls to mitigate the risk of any adverse reactions to sesame products. Although such actions don't violate the law, the FDA does not support them, the agency said in a statement. There are no obituaries today in the Longmont Times. Thank you for joining us for the reading of the Boulder Daily Camera and the Longmont Times Call. My name is Nicola Fordwood. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.